a hog industry update, a trip to the Dakotas, and checking out cotton seed testing in North Carolina. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a weekly podcast that looks at issues across the country as reported by our editors. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress. And if you hear noise in the background, it's because my home studio is now tucked into what has become an active construction zone. The production of meat in the United States has been upended by coronavirus. We wanted to catch up with what's happening in the hog industry, so we'll start off talking with Ann Hess, editor of National Hog Farmer. After that, we head north to the Dakotas to talk with Lon Tonneson, editor of Dakota Farmer, who shares what he's learning about the beef industry, including a surprising topic at one industry webinar, civil discourse. And we wrap up with John Hart at Southeast Farm Press, where the North Carolina Department of Agriculture has instituted an industry-supported program to test cotton seed so farmers know about the quality of the product they're buying. First up, let's check in on the swine industry with Ann Hess, National Hog Farmer. Well, Anna, haven't talked to you about the hog industry in at least three weeks. I think it's time we catch up because it's a fast-moving challenge. What are you hearing uh, from your perspective and what's going on with the industry now? Yeah, hi, Willie. Yeah, it's a uh, it's really interesting time we're in here. Um, all our, our plants are now operating with the executive order uh, coming through, but, you know, 25 are still under 100% capacity. Um, we do have some like Columbus Junction is, is running at normal operations, but, you know, current capacity right now, as of Tuesday, we were seeing um, it was down 28%. So, still quite a bit of hogs backed up. Um, the National Pork Producers Council put out a fact sheet, and with those current capacity levels, um, they're estimating there's 170,000 um, misplaced hogs per week, or per day, I should say. They're estimating that we could have up to 10 million hogs that will need to be euthanized between the weeks of April 25th and September 19th. Good heavens. I mean, that's that's a number that's kind of hard to even quantify. Uh, what are producers doing in the light of all this? Yeah, um, on Tuesday, National Pork Board had another COVID-19 webinar. And it's, um, you know, Minnesota is right in the epicenter of it. Um, there's not really a lot of guidelines for from federal USDA FEMA yet. So, you know, the state agencies and um, pork producers are having to work together with private parties. Minnesota set up two uh grind and compost sites um, that they've been working on um, to try to help these producers. They can take care of around 3,000 a day, it sounds. Um, you know, there are some some areas of the country, northeast, I've talked to producers up there, and um, they're not they're not having you know, problems yet. The line speeds haven't slowed down. You know, like I said, some of these plants are running 100%. Um, so, you know, they're looking to try to help uh, get these hogs somewhere else, maybe into local meat lockers, which are, are obviously already full, too, in the Midwest. You know, I've heard of some people having butchering parties. Uh, if, you know, if you can skin a deer, you might be able to, you know, to get a hog off, off the farm for a, a producer. So a lot of um, different challenges there and people trying to find different ways to help these these folks out. Well, the nice thing is there are people that do want to help. This is a national issue that's truly becoming a local problem, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, like I said, right now, um, there are there are no indemnities. Um, the USDA hasn't come out with any plan yet on that. Um, national Pork Producer Council is asking for uh, 
$1.73 billion to compensate farmers for those losses, as well as 500, over $500 million for um, euthanasia depopulation expenses, as well as um, equip funding for the, to be environmentally responsible and, and the ways they're going about. You know, you think in the Midwest, okay, Minnesota, you might be able to find carbon sources in South Dakota, Nebraska, and where there's, it might be a little more difficult. And so even today, um, Nebraska Extension was starting a, a site to connect uh, people in private industries that maybe have carbon uh, with producers who are looking to do that so they can compost effectively. Yeah, so we need we need a minimum wood chips, some kind of biomass to put with those livestock to get the aerobic bacteria working, right? Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. And South Dakota State's done work with even corn stalks and um, you know that's worked effectively. But you know people are are definitely looking for ways to you know unload these these hogs somewhere and and do it safely and environmentally sound and that they can you know reuse that land again in the future so what's the long term of this i mean what are you hearing from industry leaders about who's going to be left um, i'm not talking about packers i'm talking about producers uh, how, how can a producer take this hit um, and how does this impact an individual producer yeah, that um, definitely got raised during that webinar, too. Uh, Steve Meyer was visiting about that, and you know, there's been a lot of discussion on further consolidation in the industry. Um, Dermot Hayes pointed out that the last time we had capacity issues like this was in 1998, and the problems were very similar. USDA acted too slowly, and we lost you know, an entire generation of hog producers, including two of the largest. It's definitely an issue. Another thing... Um, that was interesting on the webinar call was both Steve and, and Neil Dirks mentioned exports. And there's concern that as this reaches Capitol Hill and maybe indemnities are paid out that people say, well, why we don't need this export market. And, you know, that took years to develop. A lot of those countries are taking variety meat that we don't in America value as much as they do. And so um, really you know, cautioned, leaving that alone and, um, you know, making sure we're still a reliable supplier to them. But but Neil did mention as well that, you know, some of those countries that do have same uh, pork preferences as we do, like for the pork loin uh, example, their their orders are getting shorted too. So it's, it's not that we're sending all the meat out of the country. And, you know, as Steve pointed out, we don't have a pork shortage right now. Um, you know, we're for those some of those like Hormel that have been running pretty efficiently this whole time. If you're a customer of theirs, you're you're going to have pork. Um, it's going to be some of those other ones, GBS, Smithfield, where we'll probably see some shortages in the stores. Well, that's interesting too because I think when we talked about this several weeks ago, we had a lot of pork and cold storage. The plants had been pretty running pretty much efficiently ahead of retail demand. I was surprised to find out how fast it went from we've got a lot of pork and cold storage and now. I can't buy a tenderloin in the port in the grocery store. Yeah, I mean it. It definitely hit fast, um, and you know there could be. You know we could be back up um, estimates of maybe up to ninety percent by fall at at packer capacity. But then you know, there's still opportunities. Is there going to be rebreaks of COVID cases? Is there um, you know the fear factor among workers, um, you know, is the line speed with, you know, the distancing between workers and things, is that going to be the new norm? You know, it, it'll be interesting to see if, you know, will we ever be able to get back to what we what we had? And, you know, by some calculations, they think that we'll need to reduce pigs by 
50, 15% for the foreseeable future. So it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the fall. Um, you know, some of the actions being taken won't even have an impact until 2021. We just got done uh, with our global mega producer report, which we'll be unveiling at the uh, Global Hog Virtual Industry Conference here, May 27th and 28th. And, you know, we put the report together last year. We talked about African swine fever and how disruptive that will be and, you know, what where what companies will be on this list this year. And, and now we're talking COVID and who's going to be on, on the 2021 list. So, yeah, there definitely could be some disruption here. That's pretty crazy. If you're interested in being a part of a global hog industry forum event, you can find ads and links to that at nationalhogfarmer.com. That is a pretty big deal. That's a two-day event. It includes the new product tour, Global Mega Producer. It's a really exciting online event for the industry, and I think a lot of farmers may want to take part in that too, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we've expanded it to two days. And, and like you mentioned, the new product tour that people might have been familiar with uh, that we ran every year at World Pork Expo will be for the first time online with um, availability for audience particip- participation, kind of like a Shark Tank style, um, where the companies will get to um, present their product and, and the panel of judges will um, be able to ask some questions there and everyone can see, view in and, and maybe potentially visit with those customers companies afterwards too to find out more about their products we also have our expo hall with representatives that's been quite popular um and then yeah the programming itself is is quite extensive from you know animal health nutrition strategies biosecurity you know and then obviously in this time we're talking COVID 19 market analysis and um, a lot of good information for producers and industry members so yeah i think um when we did this last year when your team did this last year, not, I don't want to take credit. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot of work going into that. It was an amazing day. And as I watched the whole day, I was fascinated by the quality and the information. I think this year at turning the new product tour, which I have had some involvement in the new product tour over the years, turning it into a Shark Tank event sounds like a really cool deal. Um, I know you and Kevin have been working hard on this as well as the, the whole livestock team. Um, but I think that farmers should know. So give me the dates again. And is there a link I can go to to maybe sign up or get more information? Um, yeah, there is a link right on the National Hog Farmer okay, uh, site. That's the tab for Global Hog Industry Virtual Conference. Great. And that's May 27th and 28th? That's correct. So right after Memorial Day. It's a good deal. Again, it's a it's an important event. Uh, especially with, it's even more important now with uh, Pork Expo canceled again this year. As we look at this, you know, you mentioned 1998. There's a key word in 98, that's eight. And that was what pigs cost back then. I believe that was the last time, eight cents. We're in a different situation with the contracts and the integrators. How are some of those big, and I won't name names, but how are some of those big names that you and I know dealing with all this? You know, um, I, I know they're in the thick of things. Um you know, trying to get produced, get the, the hogs somewhere for these producers. But, you know, you bring up an interesting point that uh, just visiting with some folks in the industry, you know, maybe these um, big players might look to the future and want to have their own packing plants um, rather than rely. I mean, obviously, some of these folks already do, but there might be uh, more interest in that where they can kind of maybe control things a little bit better themselves. Um, you know, I don't know about the independent producers if they'll make get through this um you know they may be getting bought out here by you know people that have weathered through this before and 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 have thought of different opportunities or ways to to you know come through it at the end but um yeah for the most part um 
people are on the ground, you know, trying to just make sure everything's being handled and trying to, you know, keep keep pork moving as much as they can. Well, we're in a situation where I'm pretty sure that when we come through this in 2021, a lot of things are going to look different. We just don't know what that means, right? Right. And and totally agree. I, you know, like I said, next next year when we're talking at the Global Mega Producer, that list could look completely different. Yeah. But the one good thing about being a journalist is we get to watch it all happen. I don't know if that's a good thing or not lately. We've been talking to Ann Hess, editor of National Hog Farmer, a publication and brand that has been all over this issue with how to manage your your livestock, how to deal with the uh, depopulation of a herd, and all those other issues. And keep up the good work. Uh, stay safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Lily. As Ann Hess mentioned, the Global Hog Industry Virtual Conference is set for May 27 and 28, and you can enjoy it from the comfort of your office. Just register using a link you can find at nationalhogfarmer.com. You can also get a peek at the agenda from the same link. The conference is free. You simply have to register. Moving north, in the Dakotas, weather has been less than favorable this spring for planting, and cattle producers are dealing with their share of coronavirus impacts. We talked with Lon Tonneson, editor of Dakota Farmer, to get insight from his part of the country. Well, Lon, we've traveled up north to the Dakotas to talk to you, um, and I think there might be a surprise for some people listening to the podcast. Planting hasn't been going as well for your farmers as it has in other parts of the country, has it? Um, Not for North Dakota farmers, uh... Corn is, according to the latest report, is only 7% in. Soybeans, which is still early for soybeans, but 4% in. Spring wheat's only 27% in. But it's it varies a lot by region in the state. It's a big state here in North Dakota. And in the middle of the state where we didn't get a lot of corn harvested, that's still wet. I've talked to farmers that are still getting tractors stuck. The Frost is still coming out of the ground, but so we're behind a little bit. Yeah, my Twitter feed is full of those stuck tractors. Um, it's kind of scary just to watch how deep you can actually bury even a track tractor, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, one crop you've got up in that part of the world that maybe a lot of people don't know that much about is sugar beets. What's their sensitivity to planting timing and how might this weather impact the crop mix? Sugar beets is one of the great crops for this part of the country because if you can get them established, they just seem to weather anything we put at them. Uh, We're about 35% planted right now. Uh, That's only slightly behind last year at 51%. This week is, uh, this, this week is supposed to be dry and warm and I expect they'll get the rest of it in very, very fast. and they can go pretty much till the end of May, I think. Oh, that's cool. Yes, the advent of the 10-mile-an-hour planter is a eye-opener, whether you're talking horse, deer, case, agco. You can move. The other part of the um, ag picture in your part of the world is livestock. There's a lot of cow-calf up there, a lot of beef producers. Um, what's their sentiment? What are they thinking right now, given what's really happening in the news? In both North and South Dakota, there's just a lot of pain. They they are, I don't know, you hear stories about the prices being off $300 a head, maybe more than that. They just don't see any, uh, any way out of this. The COVID relief fund hasn't, the rules haven't been set out 
for the cow calf producers so they the guys don't know what how many dollars per head they're going to get for calves this fall if any so things are really up in the air and and they don't know what they're going to do well it's not like you can hold on too long if you've already got animals on the ground would this change some of the breeding strategies for some of these guys are they going to reduce their cow 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 um numbers i've heard i've been listening to a lot of webinars and uh the livestock specialists in the state are not recommending people make big changes because kind of the consensus of the of the people that are act in the academic world and they probably operate their own ranches as well is that you know this is all going to get sorted out in the long run uh, but it's just painful in the meantime but they're not being recommended to to cut way back or to uh, to alter their breeding schedule. Um, although you run into some uh, real progressive guys, a lot of these uh, soil health regenerative ag people that way before this, they got out of owning cow-calf herds so that they could be more flexible and respond to drought. They've been running custom cattle, so they're probably in the best position because they can, they can uh, very easily change their cow numbers. Yeah, I suppose not going nuts and making radical changes is probably the best move. I guess I think about all of this. Well, I'm talking to you today on May 13th for the podcast that will air on Friday the 15th. Uh, um, I don't know, Lon, if you thought about this, but really all of this hit the fan about March 13th. We are just eight weeks into this. It seems longer, but it's interesting how the time factor weighs in on everybody. Yes, yeah. And, you know, the you're starting to see the the packing plants come back. So I don't know, I just don't know how long this big panic about the beef situation is gonna continue. I think we're gonna figure out, well, we're gonna have to work and some people are gonna get sick. And uh, hopefully if they are able to quarantine, they won't get their family sick, but they'll need to keep working. From the standpoint of, you mentioned the webinars, you know, you and I have been covering agriculture for a little, for a little while on. You've probably had better access to some of the experts you've been following for a while than you've ever had in the past. Yes, uh, both North Dakota, well, North Dakota State University is doing a weekly webinar on COVID economics as it, as it affects agriculture. Um, I've learned a lot listening to it. South Dakota has the same thing going on. I don't believe it's weekly. I've been listening to, I've been interested in this uh cattle business and I'm listening to uh, or sitting in on a thing that's been organized by North Dakota State University and Texas A&M. And I want to tell you the thing that struck struck me about their webinar, the first the first night of their 14 night series, I think it is. Oh, wow. They spent at least a half an hour telling us telling the participants to be nice to each other. I mean, that's how bad the divisions in the cattle industry are. Um, they laid out the rules for civil discourse. They said they were going to cut us off if uh, we asked, you know, got too political or got mad at one of the economists that were talking. And then the economists showed some of the emails that they're getting from people. Um, the, the cattle industry is just terribly divided overall over the mandatory country of origin labeling and uh they they don't know what to do about this packer concentration oh my gosh that is a 
a hugely complicated subject I discovered. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, I did have one uh, executive from a cattle industry association tell me that cattlemen are almost their worst enemy, their own worst enemy, the, because they can't get the industry together like the corn and soybean people did and go to Congress and say, this is what we need. We need an insurance program like corn and beans have, like a revenue insurance program. And this executive was saying, when this is over, we have to get our act together and get something like that. That's amazing. Just the whole concept of having to give a lesson on civil discourse. I know that there's a lot of anger. A lot of people feel like they're being cheated. They're looking at box beef prices versus what they're getting on the hoof, um, which is probably where most of that anger starts. But uh, and I know that the Justice Department is being called upon to investigate the whole livestock industry. But I got to tell you, I just wrote a column about this that will run this week. It'll actually run the day this podcast goes live. And essentially, I talked about cheap food. And this is what cheap food gets you. Eight cents on the dollar for food means you got to take all the costs out of production. That means centering up manufacturing and just in time and all that. Don't you think? Isn't that one of the drivers of all this? Yeah, I believe so. I, I mean, believe so. Yeah. And, and I think that for so long, we've been priding ourselves on eight cents on the dollar. And that's a great thing. But I think uh, the consumer might be willing right now, the, you know, the same consumer who can't buy flour, yeast or a good pork chop, uh, might be happy to pay 10 cents on the dollar to get a little better and maybe give a little sum to the farmer, too. I don't know. I may be wrong, but it's a conversation I think we need to start having, um, which is interesting, too. You um, I think you made a comment early when we started to talk that. Uh, one of the economists talked about why it makes sense that a packer would get the profit versus the, the cowman. Is that is there a lot? What's the logic to that? Well, what I gathered from it is, um, yes, the the price for the box beef is is very high because well, because the plants are being shut down. Um, they're not running at capacity. Um, it's kind of like they're getting it from both ends. They there's great demand for it, so the price has gone up. But they can't. But they have a bottleneck on the other end. They can't get the cattle in to be processed, and so the price goes down on the on the other side of the gate for the cattle. At least that's how I understand it. I may be very simplistic, but that's what they were talking about. And they showed like a $1,250 spread between the value of those high those high boxes, high value boxes, and what the farmer was getting. Lon, it's been good to talk to you. Uh, we've been talking with Lon Tonneson. He's the editor of Dakota Farmer. Keep up the good work and uh, stay safe. I will, and you too. Thank you very much. Lon has been covering agriculture for many years, and I have long valued his perspective on a range of issues. From another wet planting season to a collapsing cattle market, we realize it's tough out there. The weather story in North Carolina sounds a little bit like the Dakotas. A cool, wet spring has slowed work. John Hart at Southeast Farm Press offers an update, and we discuss an interesting cottonseed testing program for the state. John, it's good to catch up with you out in the Carolinas. I'm thinking the weather where you are is a little different than where I am in Minnesota, but we are going to warm up to 70-something by Friday, which is great. So what's going on with you guys out there? What's, let's talk a little bit about planting before we start talking about seed. How, what's the planting progress like in, the, in your neighborhood? Well, actually, Willie, we're pretty close to where you are. It's been awfully cold here. We've had some 
certain areas below freezing, particularly in Virginia and northern part of North Carolina. So actually planting, particularly corn and cotton and peanut planting, is, is way behind. Uh, corn planting is pretty much done, but the concern is that some of the frost might have damaged some of the corn, particularly up in, in Virginia. But right now, uh, guys are just starting planting basically this week, uh, peanut and cotton planting, and they're a little bit behind. Normally they start May 1st. So they're raring to go, and they need some warm weather, which we're going to have next week. So next week will be a real busy week for planting of cotton and peanuts. Oh, they'll be done by Friday. I mean, that's how fast we can go anymore, right? It's pretty fast, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So there's one part of planting that really matters, especially in cotton, and that, of course, is cotton seed. And North Carolina is doing something a little different um, in the world of cotton seed and cotton seed testing. Can you talk me through what the program is and what it's for and who's doing it? Sure, actually it was launched this year because in the past, though, the farmers have kind of complained there's been certain lots of seeds that had poor cold germs. So earlier this year, they launched the uh, cotton seed pilot program with the North Carolina Department of Agriculture involved, uh, NC Extension, and North Carolina cotton producers. And the seed companies, too, were all involved for a program where they can farmers can test their cold germ and their seed germ, their, their cold germ and their warm germ, and registered with the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and determine the cold germ and warm germ of each of those lots of cotton seed they purchase. So they're doing a pretest. What does that mean in terms of, obviously it's a third-party endorsement for the seed quality, but what happens if my test turns out bad? Well, they, apparently you can talk to the seed company and, and, and rectify it if it's bad because they are involved. And the idea is you're supposed to know about the germination quality before you plant. So most of this has already been registered. So you know, you know about the seed quality before you plant, and you just make sure you plant the proper germ. And like I say, so far the program has been successful. A lot of guys have been involved in it and enrolled in it. Really? And do they? So is it? It's something they demanded, or I mean, what drove this whole thing? Actually, it's, it was I guess started by the Extension Service because it, back in 2018 and 2019 they really noticed that certain lots really had pulled poor cold germ. They weren't germinating and you weren't getting the yield and they tried to figure out what happened. And it turns out they did the research and it turns out just to be from the seed source in Arizona just had the poor cold germination quality. So cottonseed being so extensive, they knew there was a need for this program. So that was launched then. And that's, that's basically how it started. I suppose if I were a seed company, I knew this was going to happen. I'd really do some of my own background testing before I brought seed into North Carolina. Yeah, you would think so, but it's again, it's, it's hard to test it. And they say the problem was certain parts of Arizona had cold, rainy weather, and the seed quality wasn't there. So it's it's mm. and again, I guess the main the main thing it's not a large percentage. So it's only a very very small percentage. And they're saying so far, most of the seed used and planted is, is outstanding and is excellent condition. It's just only a very very small percentage. They're saying less than 10 percent has had this problem, but they they want it to be close to 100 percent quality because of the you know the high expense for it cost of seeds and how important it is for farmers to have really good quality seed. Well, that's great. I mean, this is a program that kind of puts a third-party endorsement on the quality of the test. And I assume then as seed companies watch this, they can do some baseline work and kind of figure out what's going on for the future, right? Exactly. And it's all involved. It's a, it's a, a web database with the North Carolina Department of Agriculture. And you can register your seed with that department. And it's, that's the third-party endorsement. And they're, they're very much involved very much behind it and again the North Carolina North Carolina cotton producers is behind it and the extension services behind it and the and the farmers and, and the main thing is the seed companies really do have good buy-in on it. They're they're behind it all the way. They're they're well, not fighting it at all. 
Question for you though, can so then can I go to the site and look at the lot results? I assume they anonymize the information, but uh, can they I look do. at the lot they results? Do, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you, yeah, you sure can. I, I believe you can. Okay. Well, I mean, that'd be valuable if I'm in North Carolina, I want to check out some cotton, see who's performing well. I mean, obviously, extension and departments of agriculture have done different yield trials and stuff for cotton for forever. I mean, the South is still doing some of that, although it's getting harder to get those done in time for a guy to make a seed purchase decision. To do a seed germ quality test right before planting, That's. Uh, do you think other states are looking at some of this? They're saying they're, they're kind of looking at North Carolina sort of setting the trend. The other states really haven't had reported the, the problem of the germination problem. So the other states are kind of looking at it right okay. now. But North Carolina, it really is the first. Actually, it was a big, big topic at the uh, Southeastern Cotton Growers meeting back in uh, January that was held in Savannah. This is one of the big topics. And the other states are, are keeping an eye on it, particularly in the southeast. Oh, I suppose, it's really not a problem. In the, in the Mid-South or in the, in the West, as, as far as now is concerned. Mainly it's been a, a problem, mainly in North Carolina. Well, yeah, but North Carolina and South Carolina do get that cold weather in the spring. Obviously the... Oh, exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're right because they say it's, it's rare indeed that really have ideal planting quality conditions in North Carolina. And that's a perfect example this year. It's been, it's been so cold and it's, it's, it's not good weather for planting. That's where there's, it's hard to find a picture perfect planting in North Carolina, which was sort of yeah. prompted this program. Well, you, you cover agriculture in my favorite part of the country. As someone who did a lot of growing up time in Virginia, I know the area pretty well and I just enjoy what that, what your coverage is doing. So we've been talking to John Hart with Southeast Farm Press. We've been talking about seed testing with the North Carolina Department of Agriculture. And John, you keep up the good work. Uh, stay distant. I know you're getting out and covering people, but stay safe, okay? I sure will. Appreciate it, Willie. Many thanks to Ann Hess at National Hog Farmer, Lon Tonneson at Dakota Farmer, and John Hart at Southeast Farm Press for their contribution to this week's podcast. The entire Farm Progress team is covering the COVID-19 issue from across the country with local insights into what's happening and constructive ideas on actions producers can take to protect themselves and their businesses. That information is starting to appear in our magazines, but you can also find our coverage by visiting farmprogress.com forward slash coronavirus. Again, farmprogress.com forward slash coronavirus. This site section is constantly being updated. You've been listening to Around Farm Progress, our weekly look at agriculture across the United States. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional magazines, as well as Farm Futures, Beef, National Hog Farmer, and Feedstuffs. And of course, the Farm Progress Show and Husker Harvest Days. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening.